Good morning, East Brandywine Baptist Church. This is quite different for us to be meeting virtually, and I'll have to say it was very sad to drive into an empty parking lot just a few moments ago, but I'm very glad that many of you are going to be able to join us. Hopefully, all that want to will be able to tune in and worship with us as we look into the Word and pray and read and study the Scriptures. I, I want to start with a few announcements. Um, yesterday was, was a big set of changes in my life. The first, you may or may not notice, I'm wearing prescription glasses, which I haven't before. So maybe that means I will do less of this when I'm preaching than I have in the past. My kids are certainly hoping that's the case. And also yesterday, my oldest daughter was engaged uh, to be married to Jameson Lease. So that was an exciting bit of news. Um, the other news wasn't exciting, and that was when we met with our elders and uh, with folks from our church about suspending our services for at least the next three weeks, and uh, not something I ever thought we would do, and certainly not something that I'm excited about, but we're trusting the Lord through this and know that he has a purpose and a plan for uh, what he is doing in our lives and the lives of all of those uh, on the globe right now who are going through the same trial. I did want to mention that I failed to have a caveat on our announcement that the funeral for our sister Norma Bond will still take place on Thursday. And just so you know, that is going to take place. The family and friends visitation will actually be at Wednesday, Wednesday at Donahue Funeral Home from 6 to 8 p.m. That's the 18th. And then the visitation, another visitation, will be right here on campus. Um, on Thursday, March 19th, from 9.30 to 11. And then at 11 o'clock, we will have the funeral service for our sister Norma Bond. Again, I want to mention to you that um, if you are feeling sick or been around someone that's sick, um, or you find yourself in one of those vulnerable categories, I'm sure that the Bond family will understand. And please don't feel any obligation to attend. In fact, we would encourage you not to if you're uh, feeling ill or you think in some way you have been in contact with someone who's not not well I want us to start our time today from reading God's word and I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles Hopefully you do as you're sitting there turn to Romans chapter 8 That's going to be our scripture reading this morning And it really is a New Testament passage that's going to go along with the passage that we're going to study together In the scriptures, which is Psalm 46 so Romans chapter 8, and I would like to begin reading in verse number 18. And just so you have a little context, um, the book of Romans, as we're studying now, is divided up into, like Paul's letters, doctrine, then application. Romans 8 is dealing with our security in Christ. Because there seems to be, in our experience, two things that are going to cause us to doubt whether we're secure in Christ. And those two things happen to be our struggle, our ongoing struggle with our sinful flesh, and then trial, suffering. Because there is this thought that if you're a Christian, you're going to be immune to struggles with the flesh once you have been born again. Or perhaps this idea that you're going to be immune from sufferings. And so Romans 8 is actually this wonderful reminder that this is to be expected. This is the normal Christian life, to go through struggles with your flesh, to find that that temptation to sin and that sin that so easily besets you is recurring and it's an ongoing struggle 
but we have the spirit of God. We've been, we have had a death blow to the old man, and now we have the spirit of God to help us, but also through struggles and suffering and circumstances and trials that don't seem to have an expiration date. So this second half of Romans 8 deals with the suffering aspect, and how can I be secure in Christ if I'm suffering? So we want to pick up that idea found in verse number 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is being revealed in us, or to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, who will he not, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Gracious Father, we just relish these words that you have given us, you have spoken to us in our struggle, and we admit to you right now that many of our hearts are troubled, we're unsettled, and we live in a world that's unsettled and afraid. We ask that we would not see it as a strange thing when we find ourselves in the fiery trial, but as a 
sense of normalcy as you refine us and make us according to your purpose to be conformed to the image of your son. And so in that moment, we actually welcome trials, even though our heart pushes back. Lord, we, we know that you are working together these things for our good and for your glory. We do praise you, though, Lord, that your word says that these things are temporary, that these will end, that this is a light affliction compared to the glory which will follow. We praise you, Father, that your word is very clear to us, that you are with us in the trial. And as we will study this morning in Psalm 46, you are with us. You are the Lord that is with us. We praise you that we do not walk through these alone. You are with us in these broken places, in these hard places. We praise you, Father, that your Son has overcome the grave and that we will follow. And we praise you, Lord, that there's nothing that can separate us from your love, which is in Christ. And so we come to you today hungry, we find it difficult to sometimes stay focused, particularly when we're perhaps watching online and, and there's not the interactive that we are accustomed to, at least visibly. So we pray that you would use this technology, we thank you for it, to help us grow in our understanding of what you're doing through difficulty and challenge and hardship and suffering. Help us to love you more. We pray that you would help us as a church family to serve one another during these challenging days. Although we can't be in each other's presence, we pray that we would take advantage of all the creative opportunities we have through technology to stay up to date with how people are doing. We also pray, Lord, that you would use this in some way for us to advance the gospel and show the love of our Savior to our community as they also experience this trial. We pray for our sister Sally Nickham, who is awaiting surgery on her heart. We pray that that would not be delayed, but that she would be able to have that surgery and it would be effective and you would continue to heal her body. We pray for the family of Norma Bond. Lord, thank you for our sister, her faithfulness to you, her faithfulness and love for this church. We pray that the celebration of her life and the memorial service that will take place later this week will be an encouragement to the family and friends, but lift up Christ as well. Oh Lord, we just commit this time to you now. We ask that you, for you to speak to our heart in a particular way, as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bibles now, I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 46. So hopefully the family has some Bibles in your laps and you can turn to Psalm 46. This is a very familiar psalm, but I think it's so apropos for what we're facing right now as a people of God and as a world. When I was in college, I was about to enter seminary, so I just graduated from, from undergrad. I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Australia. That lasted for about two months. And after the trip was concluded, I had the opportunity of going and visiting some family who were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. I kept hearing from Aussies all over Australia when I told them about my plans at the conclusion of our time in Australia that 
there would be this, this real danger of contracting malaria when I was in Papua New Guinea. They said, this is a strand that has been lethal and you, you really need to be careful. You should have gotten some medication prior to going to Papua New Guinea. The plans were all made. There was no way for me to see a doctor and to get medication. So I was just frankly terrified. I, I didn't want to go. Um, I just met Becky, and so all of these worries about I'm going to die in the bush and I'm never going to be married, all kinds of thoughts were assaulting me. Then we had this guy who took us out into the outback in Australia to minister to the aboriginals. And I told him about my fears, and he kind of pushed them aside, and he said, you need to get some Bushman. I said, Bushman? What is Bushman? He said, Bushman is the best insect repellent around. It has 80% DEET. You can't do that in the United States. <laughs> so I was like, get me some. Get me some. So he did. He got me a whole tube. And I remember our, we finished our trip in Australia. I was in Sydney getting ready to take off to Port Moresby, New Guinea. And I had my tube of Bushman. And I was so worried, so filled with anxiety that I was going to get malaria and die a, a young death and never be married, never have children, all of these goals that you have in your mind. And my, my mind was being assaulted. So I went into the bathroom before we um, were asked to get on the plane, and I took that entire tube of Bushman, and from head to toe, I covered myself. And I thought, you know, if I cover myself now, at least I will be able to maybe not bathe for a few days, and maybe I can survive the, the first part of this trip, and maybe there'll be some more Bushmen when I get to Papua New Guinea. I can only imagine what I smelled like when I got on that plane and was sitting in very close quarters in the coach section of that airplane. We landed in Port Moresby, and we went into this very small, dilapidated excuse for an um, airplane hub, and I was waiting for my one piece of luggage. Only been in the airport for probably five minutes, and I felt this sting on my right hand, uh, followed by an immediate itch. I looked down and had already been bitten by a mosquito. So at that moment, I almost despaired. I was like, I used the whole tube of Bushman, and here I am. I'm going to have to trust God. It, it actually was the best lesson I learned for 10 days in Port Moresby of being privileged to minister to people in Papua New Guinea. But God knew what I needed to do was not rely on everything but him but to fully rely on the Lord's protection when I had done immediately all that I could do to protect myself. Here in Psalm 46, we have a moment where there is distress, and the person who writes Psalm 46, we're not sure who wrote it, but they are in distress, they're in um, deep distress, and they've also experienced God's deliverance from distress in the past. So what you have here is not only someone giving us counsel from the word of God on distress, it's someone who's telling us what it's like to experience God's deliverance and knowing that God is with us in the trial. You see, we can live our lives like I did in Papua New Guinea for 10 days. Actually, I did that all through my Australia mission trip. I was so worried about it. We can live our lives in this circle of swirling thoughts that torture us with the relentless question, what if? What if I get the disease? What if I get COVID-19? 
right? What, what if a family member contracts this? Or what if because of this tragedy and crisis, I lose my job or my child dies? I mean, all kinds of what ifs assault us. And, and here in Psalm 46, he's going to take the absolute worst case scenario. I mean, you really, when you read it, I think you'll agree with me, you can't get much worse than this scenario. And he says, in this scenario, let's insert our God who's our refuge and strength. And so instead of allowing yourself to be tortured by the what-ifs, and I know I'm speaking with a lot of people just like me, you live your life with this constant ongoing conversation, and, some, and sometimes a majority of that conversation is filled with the what-if. What if this, and what if that? And you know what it's like. It's paralyzing. Spiritually, it's debilitating. So rather than focusing on the what-ifs, Psalm 46 teaches us that our God is the God of even if. Or, or in, in our ESV, it's even though. So, so even if, or even though, if it's the worst-case scenario, if all of those fears actually materialize and come true, our God is the God of the even ifs, the even those. See, God is actively in control of every aspect of our lives, and because of that, we are called to trust him. So let's read Psalm 46 together, and one of the beauties of the book of Psalms, right, is that Psalm 46, as well as all the Psalms, or refreshment for real life, aren't they? Aren't you glad when you read your Bible that it's obvious that God is not presenting to us a different world than the world in which we live in? Think about that for a moment. When we read the scriptures, God is not presenting to us a different world than the one that we actually live in. So we don't come here on Sunday mornings, usually. We, we don't attend here on Sunday mornings to kind of, as it were, get ourselves psyched up for the real world from Monday to Saturday. And, and so this is like our spiritual energizing bunny that we, we try to work up, and then we enter the real world. No, the Bible never draws us from the context of reality into the spiritual world that doesn't exist. He actually gives us beliefs and truths that are for practical applications in the real world. Some people view Christianity as one circle. It's kind of like the sacred circle. And then you have real life over here, which is the secular world. I mean, we have Christians that live their lives that way, don't we? So, so I have the sacred world, and that's where I learn Bible doctrine, and I learn the things that God says kind of propositionally. And then I have the real world, and that's the secular world. No, folks, it, it's one. And, and our God presents to us in the scriptures reality. And the focus here is that we would really understand that we are supposed to take the doctrine and the confession, and we're to express it in the way that we think, and the way that we live. Before we read Psalm 46, I want you to think this way. Many of you, if I ask you, what is your favorite book of the Bible? You'd say Psalms. Why? Well, I would suggest that the reason why, for the most part, is because Psalms is so real. It's not a different world. It's the actual world we live in. It's the place where every possible emotion is expressed. You ever found yourself reading the Psalms and you're like, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that. The, the way that's being expressed 
sounds almost irreverent. They're teetering on it, at least. I mean, how can you actually ask God where he's at? And how long until he makes right what is wrong? But that's what the Psalms is. It's refreshment for real life. So with that in mind, let's read the, the Psalm that Martin Luther called his own. I've heard suggested, and I don't think it's a bad suggestion, that every year of your life that you're conscious, choose a psalm or, uh, that, that relates to that year and kind of allow it to be something that you marinate in and you meditate in and become part of you. Well, I'm 46 this year. So with that assignment, this is kind of where I like to live. And I hope that it'll be not just for Luther, not just for me, but for our church family, a place that you retreat too often. Here it is, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes the war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This psalm teaches us that God is actively in control of every aspect of our lives, and as a result, we're supposed to trust him. That's what this psalm's about. Now, we're familiar with understanding that we're supposed to take what we believe and apply it to how we live. This is very common. This is how we live our lives, right? I mean, for instance, if we believe a certain kind of berry or fruit is poisonous, we generally will not eat it. If we believe that going to the gymnasium, when they're open, to, will help us with our fitness and will help us be healthier, we'll go. There are some of us that we have believed that our family most needs more money and because we believe that, we work long hours in order to secure more money. Well, here's one that's true also, and you'll see this in Psalm 46. If you believe that God, and I believe that God is actively ruling over all of his creation, including, catch this, the detailed circumstances of your life this morning, you'll trust him. So if we believe God is actively ruling over all of his creation, including the details and circumstances of our lives, we will trust him. Now Psalm 46 places us in a moment of cataclysmic disaster. And for some of us, the last few weeks, we felt like we're part of that. This is like some kind of Hollywood disaster movie, plus plus. We're wondering about all of the things that we're familiar with that seem to be closing or unavailable to us. And so there's a run on the store and for paper goods especially, and it causes all of us to be unnerved. 
in this psalm, we're not sure exactly what the context is. Bible scholars have identified the vocabulary of Psalm 46 with another place in your Bible that you could perhaps look at later today, found in Isaiah 36 and 37. This is a time when Hezekiah was king, ruling in Jerusalem, but he was really a vassal king under the thumb of Assyria. He had made a hidden agreement, a secret agreement with Egypt. And this was a moment where he was trying to break the yoke of the Assyrian regime. But now he had been surrounded by 200,000 strong, and Jerusalem was about to be under siege. And so Psalm 46 probably has its context there. But one of the ways to see how beautifully this psalm has set up, you'll notice that it's broken up into three stanzas. Now, I have a simple brain, so when I can see things like this, it really helps me have something to hang the psalm on. So I'm hopeful that it'll be that way for you. Do you notice this word selah in italics that's at the end of verse 3, it's at the end of verse 7, and then again it finishes the psalm in verse 11? Do you see that? Now, there have been a lot of people who have spilled a lot of ink on what the word selah means. It probably was a musical notation that was included in the songbook of the Old Testament, of the people of God. But primary, everybody, or usually everybody agrees that it has some idea of stopping. Be quiet. Reflect. Pause. Take that in again. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm sure you've heard me say it, I'm going to say that again. Well, a selah is basically, without saying it again, just everybody, just be quiet. Think about that again. I tried to reflect that in my reading of Psalm 46, to have a pause. But one of the ways it helps you is, is there are three stanzas here that are going to teach us that God is in control absolute control of every aspect of our lives and if we believe that we will trust him so friend if we are not trusting god you see the logic in this syllogism don't you where's the problem if we're assaulted by fear and controlled by the what ifs it's because we we don't really believe in the god of even if. You say, well, that's harsh. <laughs> well, remember, I put myself squarely with all of you because these are the moments where we as Christians can walk almost as practical atheists because there is a separation. We have this Christian atheism going. We, we have doctrine in our heads that doesn't get to our heart. And this psalm is a reminder that God is in absolute control of every aspect of our lives. And that calls for those who believe to trust. So three stanzas separated by the selah. Okay? So you'll see this. So the first one we want to look at is stanza one. And stanza one is going to tell us something about our God. Stanza two is going to tell us something about our God. And stanza three will tell us something about our God. And it climaxes with that very familiar phrase, be still and know that I am God. Now, just as a teaser, maybe as an appetizer, that may not mean what we've always thought it to mean at first take. So just stay with me. But stanza one is going to deal with this truth about our God. If we believe that God is in absolute control of every aspect of our lives, we'll trust him. And here we learn that God is our refuge. Do you see that? 
you're taking notes, God is our refuge. Now, if we really knew what we were doing on these, these, these live feeds, we'd be able to put that right in front of you, but we don't have that. So the blank is refuge, R-E-F-U-G-E. God is our refuge. What should be our response to God being our refuge? No fear. I want you to see this. He says, and he starts in this first stanza, God is our refuge and strength. So refuge means a hiding place, a tower, a fortress, a place of protection. But not only is he saying he will defensively protect us, this is something we see throughout the scriptures, he is going to infuse us with strength while we are in the midst of our defensive protection. So this is both internal and external strength. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul begged God, he said three times, please take this from me. And rather than taking it from him, the Lord's answer was different than Paul wanted to hear, evidently. And it was actually, my strength is going to be made perfect in your weakness. But I want you to see this, friend. He starts with God is our refuge and strength. He doesn't start where we often start. He doesn't start where I often start. I often start with my circumstance. God, we need to talk. We, we need to talk about where I'm at. But he starts with God. That's no accident that this psalm begins with God and not our circumstances. See, in every difficulty or blessing, if we could grow in our understanding of the first place to start is who our God is, rather than the circumstance we find ourselves in. The whole Bible is a book about God, not primarily a book about us. I'm all for looking through the scriptures as I do my Bible reading each morning for a nugget that I can take with me to work. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes we get so focused on a little nugget to help me through the day, give me some little application, some little quote, that we forget that the Bible's not primarily a book to give us inspiration for the day. It is a book that reveals the character of our God. And as we believe those things, we act a certain way, we think a certain way. So he starts not with the tragedy and the crisis and the cataclysmic event that's taking place. He starts with God. He is our refuge and our strength. But then he says a very present help in trouble. And here's the result of that. Therefore, we will not fear, and here's the, he's the God of even if, or we could say it this way, he's the God of even though, in our translation. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, I want you to just take a moment, maybe as a family, you can talk out loud there, can you think of anything that would be more unsettling than mountains to start shaking and quaking and just go right out into the sea? And the land that we're standing on to be covered by the sea as it moves over into the ocean, no longer kept at its banks by the seashore? I don't know. This has to be the worst case scenario. I mean, for all the fear that COVID-19 has brought to us, this one beats that, doesn't it? This would probably even beat a nuclear holocaust. I mean, everything is shaking. All the ground beneath us. It reminds me of moments, those of us who experienced 9-11. And the moment that 
kind of stuck in my brain. There are a lot of them, but one of them that seal there is that look of horror that those people that were out there in Manhattan as they were looking at the towers that began to crumble. Now, they immediately began to run, but right before that, or the, the look of horror when they saw colleagues, rather than burn in flames, leaping from the building, in, in that sense of horror, that's the picture here in this first stanza. If the worst-case scenario, take all your what-ifs that torture you right now, believer. You know what they are. Some of them are common. And they literally torture you, and the result is spiritual paralysis. Imagine if they came true. In this psalm, he's saying, the what-ifs, let's imagine the worst what-if, the, the worst possible what-if, if it took place, here's what we need to get. He is our refuge and strength in that moment. He is a very present help in trouble. Do you see this? He's saying God is our refuge and strength. He is present there. This is the good news of this first stanza. It doesn't take away the circumstance. So I don't have any good news this morning to say, we came up with a vaccination, we came up with a remedy, and here it is, tell everyone. But what he is saying is that there's never going to be a location for the child of God where God is not there. You'll never be by yourself. If you're God's child, you'll never be in a relationship all by yourself. You'll never be in a location by yourself. You'll never endure difficulty in isolation. He's a very present, what? A very present help in trouble. He, he is there with us. So because God is always with you and he's there so that you would have a place to run, a refuge, and help in your moments of greatest discouragement, strength, I want to ask you a series of questions before we look at the second stanza. Where do you run when the storms of life beat on you with unrelenting persistence? Do you find yourself just stuck in the circle and torture of what ifs? Where do you hide when the pressures of life chase you like a hound chases a fox? Where do you find peace and rest when all the anxiety is overtaking you and gripping you almost by your neck? You know what that feels like. Where do you go when personal conflict eats at your soul? He's saying here, it's not enough to sit around and calculate all the what-ifs. That will torture you. But to contemplate the God of even if, even though, that he will be there with us through the trial. He will be an ever-present help. He will give us refuge, defense. He will also give us strength for the trial. So no matter what painful thing you're enduring right now, we're all enduring some pain right now, aren't we? As God's child, as God's children, it's impossible for you, for me, to endure this solo. So let's take a moment for Selah. So God is actively in control of every aspect of our lives, and we are called to trust him. First of all, because he's our refuge, Therefore, we should not fear. Secondly, I want you to see that God is our river. 
You may not have thought of God this way before. That's another beauty of the Psalms. But look at verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, Jerusalem, the holy habitation of the Most High. Trivia question. Name the river that flows right now through Jerusalem. There is none. Right? There is none. You see, Hezekiah's tunnel, he did make a tunnel where water was piped into the city in case there was a siege. So there may be some reference to that historically. But, but what the, the key here is, is that God was going to supply, like a river, waters for his people, even in an arid climate, even in a moment where they didn't have a river running through, God was going to be that constant flow of refreshment for his people. So just imagine it. God is picturing himself as this river that makes his people glad. It flows into every neighborhood, into every house of his believing people. And while everything surrounding God's people is in cataclysmic destruction, the people of God are satisfied with the rivers that flow from their God. See, the nations are raging. There's political unrest. We know what that's like. But the Lord of hosts, here is a key. You're going to notice in verse 1, it says he's a very present help in trouble. See this? Verse 7 ends this stanza with the Lord of hosts is with us. And look at the end of the psalm. The Lord of hosts is with us. Now, the city of God is a phrase that's mentioned often throughout the Old Testament, especially of psalms. And it refers to Zion or Jerusalem and refers to God's people. But he's saying that in the midst of this storm, God is supplying a river, refreshment, rest, if you're taking notes, rest for his people. And because we have a God who is in absolute control of every aspect of our lives, we can expect that in the midst of the storm and the challenge and the fear, that God is going to give us that spiritual refreshment, and it will be unending. Remember when the Lord Jesus was speaking to that woman at the well who had been rejected by at least five husbands? I mean, sometimes we read John 4 and we're like, oh, she was a bad woman. No, there were a lot of bad men in this woman's life. Five of them had divorced her, probably without cause. They could. And now the one she was living with didn't have the decency to marry her. And she, trying to go at noon when maybe there would be no one around to draw some water, Jesus, when his disciples are going around, around Jericho, he must needs go through. And he sits there at the well speaking with this woman, and he asks for water, and she says, do you not know that I'm a Samaritan? And then he says, if you'd ask me, I'd give you water and you'd never thirst again. Of course, she was confused. She thought, oh, this would be a great thing if I could have some water and never need to replenish my water bottle. But the Lord was speaking to her about eternal life. And later on in the book of John, he describes what that water of life is. It's the Spirit of God in the heart of a believer. We read that in Romans 8, that when we're groaning for deliverance from the suffering, the Spirit of God is going to help us express prayers that we can't even utter to our Father. You see, this is the wonderful security of being in a relationship with the God who is in absolute control. See, the God of even though or even ifs can be trusted completely because he's our refuge. 
He's our river. And this river is a reminder that Jerusalem was going to be secure, even though they didn't have a waterway. They didn't have a real river running through their city on a hill. But God was going to be the river that makes glad his people. Can you have a heart that's glad right now? Selah on that a moment. Some of you moms are really fretting. Not just that your children are going to be home for two weeks and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with them. But this has really caused upheaval on how you get to your job. And some of you are worried and concerned, and rightfully so, about a lack of income that you're going to face during this moment. We're all concerned about the spread of this disease and how that can impact family members and loved ones and friends and just fellow patriots here in this land and citizens as well as those across the world. Can, can we be glad in moments of cataclysmic turmoil? He says there's a river that makes glad the people of God. It gives them security that, no, you know what? He ultimately will never forsake his people. So no matter if all those mountains and all the dry land just goes right out into the sea, there's still going to be provision for God's people. He'll never forsake them. You know, we're in a world that's really, and understandably so, become almost consumed with security systems, right? We have security systems for our personal security. We, we understand that we need to have security for our online presence, security systems for every situation. We look at our security system for our homes, for our bikes, for our cars. This is a fireproof security system. You see, he's saying that his people, even though the nations are raging, you see that in verse 6? The kingdoms are tottering. This is scary stuff. The God of hosts is what? Look at it in verse 7. Can you say it with me out loud wherever you're at? The God, the Lord of hosts is what? With us. Remember the Lord of Shalom. We, we saw this. With the Lord of hosts. We saw this very wording in the book of Malachi. We studied it together. He is the Lord of the host. He's the Lord of the armies. And he says he will never leave us. He's there with us. <laughs> but for all of us to have some soup for the soul, he's the God of who? Jacob. I love passages like this. He's not just referring to his people Israel, his covenant people Israel. He certainly is. But if you know anything about your Old Testament, of all the names you would have pulled out of he's the God of this hero of the Old Testament. For him to use Jacob, it brings real salve to my soul. Jacob was not the outstanding man that I want all my sons to be. I promise you. And you shouldn't either. But Jacob was one that God had set his love on. And he's one that even though he was, he was a heel grabber and he was dishonest, God was still faithful to him, not because Jacob worked it up. It wasn't because Jacob was a wonderful person. And I want you to hear today that this kind of covenant love doesn't come by you doing good things, trying to keep the commandments or, or trust the Lord a little more and worry a little less. Oh, no. The Bible is clear. There's no way for us to obtain this relationship with God except through adoption. And we're adopted into the family of God when we turn from our sinful ways, acknowledge that those sins have been against God and him only, and that 
God, in his great love for us, has provided a refuge and strength through his son Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all the Jacobs in the world. He died for all the women at the well in the world. That he is going to rescue and save. And this is the wonderful truth of the gospel. That he is rescuing his people and he is with us. And the God of Jacob, his people who he came to save, will be rescued. So, final stanza. But before we go to the final stanza, I want to ask you this. Do you have a source of unending gladness when all your security seems to be shaking beneath your feet? Let's see law on that one a moment. So the Lord is in absolute control of every aspect of our lives, so we should trust him, and he gives us this final stanza, and we're done. Look at verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So this last one is, God is not only our refuge and our river, he is our rescuer. He, he is the one who is restoring all things and reconciling all things, we're told, in the New Testament particularly. So our response should be, even in the midst of cataclysmic difficulty and challenge and upheaval, be confident. You see, God is going to be exalted in the earth. You see, he invites us. Do you see in verse 8, it's as though he says, I want to give you a little tour. Come and see something. He, he's inviting us to come and see something. God is going to make all wars cease. He's going to break all of their equipment and their military um, tools of war. And he's going to disarm them. That's what's being discussed here. Now, I don't want to ruin a verse that has become a wonderful salve to our hearts over the years because I believe that application is there. But in the context of Psalm 46, look at verse 10 again. Be still and know that I am God. This is in the plural, so he's speaking to a group of people, and most often we read this as he must be speaking to the people of God, that they just need to be quiet and wait on the Lord. And that is certainly taught throughout Scripture. But in this context, he's actually speaking to the enemies. He's speaking to all those who are raging, those that are causing the the upheaval in his people's lives. And as he calls on them, he says to them, be quiet. He devastates them by saying, I'm going to forcibly disarm you. You're no longer going to harm my people. Leave off is the exact translation here. You say, well, I, I enjoy thinking of it more about God telling me to be still and that, that I need to know that he is God. Well, that's true throughout Scripture. And I don't want to take a, that away from you. But, but I want you to see that there's probably something in this context that, that elevates the, our confidence in our God. There's going to be a great moment one day where all the enemies of God and all the enemies of God's people will be forcibly disarmed and told, you be still and you will know that I am God. I'll be exalted among all the nations I'll be exalted in all the earth. Here's something you'll see at the end of your handout. The course of the kingdom of God is a series. It really is a series. As you read the scriptures, you see it's a series of great triumphs 
that are cleverly camouflaged in disasters. Jesus always wins. He is Lord over all. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus, the disciples were very scared because it looked like the boat was going to sink and he was asleep. They said, Master, do you not care that we perish? And what did the Lord Jesus do? He rebuked them. Where's your faith? Oh, you have a little faith. And then he came up to the top of the boat and he said, Peace, be still. And what happened? Well, in Mark's classic style, he uses this word immediately. He said it immediately. Now, anybody who's been on the ocean waters and been in some troubled or choppy seas, to see all the wind and all the waters become pond smooth with no wind anymore, immediately, you would have done what the disciples did. What, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, our God will be exalted among the nations. And those of us who know him, we need to be still as well, but in anticipation of the great time where he's going to make all of our enemies be still. That includes the sickness that we are facing right now. It includes our struggle with sin and our fears that often cause us to be held captive. You see, the Lord is in absolute control, isn't he, of every aspect of our lives. We can trust him. I want to conclude, though, with what you don't see in this psalm. You don't see the psalmist saying, Lord, why don't you get me out of this circumstance? Do what I want you to do. I, I want to be out of this now. Actually, the joy and gladness of this psalm is realizing that you can take verse 2, this ultimate disaster of mountains and earth and all land being thrown into the sea. All of us agree that would be the worst what if ever. But he doesn't take away that scenario. He places God, who is our refuge and strength, in the midst of it. So my question for you is, how do you anchor your soul when the waves of life threaten to undo you? When we get hit, and some of us have, by a terrifying diagnosis, or when the constant, and we have some sisters and brothers in our church family right now who live with chronic pain, or allergies, or sensitivities, and this is not something that has an expiration date on it. When the dark clouds of that constant pain or depression hover over you, when you lose your job or you don't have the job you want, or when the next step in life just seems so unsettlingly unclear, where do you go? I mean, those of us who trust God, we really believe him, we will trust him because he is the God who is in absolute control of every aspect of our lives. And this isn't just something theoretically we try to work ourselves up to believe on Sundays. And then Monday through Saturday, we have to live in this world of what ifs. So I want to say to all of us, lovingly, and I'm speaking to my own heart right now, if you're paralyzed with the what ifs, and you find that this is the kind of thought pattern that you live in, this circular what if this and what if this, and you're spiritually paralyzed and you're dry and 
you're in a place where there's no water, come to the river of our God. It'll make glad his people. I want to conclude in prayer, and then I'm going to encourage you. Hopefully, you can find this online if you don't have a hymnal. And if you want to record some of these for us to enjoy, feel free. But I want to encourage you to sing as a family that old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And this was Luther's, basically his ode to his psalm, Psalm 46. And I want to read some of the words to that, and then I want us to close in prayer. But I want to encourage you as a family to sing together these words as you conclude. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. He's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Now listen to this question. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Saboeth, that is the Lord of hosts that we saw in our text. His name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And I want to finish with this, the last verse. That word, Christ, Jesus, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sides. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. So the ultimate what if could happen. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Well, thank you for those of you that were listening to the word and able to take it in. And my prayer is that throughout this day, We'll have some moments of Selah where we will think about these three stanzas. That God is our refuge, he's our river, he's our rescuer. Because God is in absolute control of every aspect of our lives, we're called, we're commanded, believer, to trust him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take these words of your scriptures and plant them deep into our hearts. Help us to have moments of sila, moments of reflection, where we are meditating on the truths that there's never a location, never a relationship, never a difficulty where you are not with us. Therefore, we will not fear. We will be glad, satisfied with the rivers that come streaming from our God. And we pray for our church family right now. We ask that you would grow us through the inconveniences, the fears, the real financial challenges, and perhaps even illness that will come to members of our church family. We ask for grace to walk through this struggle with our eyes on the God of even if. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.